Say it with me. This is my Bible. God's written living word to me. It's what he thinks about me. And because it tells me who I am and tells me what God says I have, then also I choose to believe and act on what I'll read. And therefore I am transformed. We are in a study on the book of Romans, and our text for this morning is chapter 2. Last week, our big idea was that no matter where you're at or how far you've fallen, God's passionate, patient, pure love pursues your reconciliation. This week, our big idea is this. The universal guilt of man does not dissuade the Father heart of God in his patient pursuit of our turning to him. Chapter 2 is a difficult chapter once again, as I said last week, with a concept regarding God's wrath and God's judgment and what's called the day of wrath that's difficult in light of some of the modern theology today. So once again, I want to rehearse where I sit before I tell you where I stand. These things have been disputed by theologians and very scholarly followers of Jesus Christ for literally thousands of years. Even the early church fathers didn't always agree on difficult and sensitive subjects like wrath, the anger of God, judgment, hell, eternal life. The translation that you're reading from can make a difference as well in certain passages, and that's why I encourage you to be a student and be sure that you have a variety of translations to read from. Your attitude and willingness to study and listen to the Holy Spirit, your, your willingness to think critically, and I know what some people say, you've probably had these discussions with even some Christian friends, that you dare not think critically. You dare not question this cardinal doctrine. You dare not question this take on the Scripture, what many call traditional Christianity or a traditional scriptural belief. You dare not question that. You dare not examine that critically or else you're going to be deceived is what they'll say. I reject that notion if, number one, you are a student of God's Word, and number two, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit and you daily ask for His wisdom and His understanding as you study the Scripture. Because the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 2, I believe it is actually, That this Holy Spirit that's in you, you need not that any man teach you, for He, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things. Jesus said the same, that the Comforter, when He comes, will teach you whatsoever I have said to you and remind you of the things that I've said to you. It's almost as though some Christians get joy from the idea of the wicked getting their just due. 
And I reject that posture. My theological baseline for our study today is this. God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He never acts in any way contrary to his DNA. It's impossible for God to act contrary to the DNA of his nature. Now, God is not just loving. He is love. There's a difference, you know. You and I are loving, but we are not love. Not in the sense that God is. Secondly, God loves the world. And Jesus did not come to judge the world. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. He came not into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God has reconciled the, reconciled the world to himself and does not count their sins against them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. That is a foundational truth to understanding the subject matter that we're going to deal with today. And finally, it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. Not man's repentance that leads to God being good. With that, let's begin to look at our text. I submit to you that verse 4 is the key to understanding all of the rest of the chapter. I want to read verse 4 from the mirror translation. Do not underestimate God's kindness. The wealth of his benevolence and his resolute refusal to let go of us in his pa patient passion is to shepherd everyone into a radical mind shift. Again, do not underestimate God's kindness. The wealth of his benevolence and his resolute refusal to let go of us in his patient passion is to shepherd everyone into a radical Mind shift. So we begin. Reading from the New Living. And let me turn to it myself. New Living Translation, verse 1 of chapter 2. You may think that you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and they should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same thing. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think that you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderful, how kind, how tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? As we unlock verses 1 through 4, we're dealing with the universal guilt of all people who are moral. This is a throwback to chapter 1. Because starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, there is this sort of pointing the finger at all those that are sinful and wicked. It gives a long list of sins. And oh, by the way, that's the great chapter on the homosexual. Romans chapter 1. 
verses 18 through 32, with inordinate or unnatural homosexual sex. But the interesting thing is, is while there are a couple of verses in, in that chapter, in that text, regarding that, it also has a long list of other sins. It's easy for us to isolate and talk about what we feel is a grievous sin and leave alone sins like gluttony. We leave alone sins like gossip. We don't make a big deal out of those, and yet they're in that same text, along with homosexuality and being disobedient to parents. And anger and all of these sins, it's a fascinating list. And we roll out of chapter 1 into the first four verses of chapter 2. And he says, you who point the finger at others saying they are wicked, shame on you. You should not be doing that. You are guilty of the same. You are just as much a sinner as they are. And you're in jeopardy of the same judgment. That's verses 1 through 4 of our text. So here in these verses, we find something called the pharisaical spirit. Being or having a pharisaical, 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 let me say it that way, pharisaical spirit means to be marked by hypocritical self-righteousness. How many of you have ever felt a pharisaical spirit? How many of you have ever had been around somebody who was operating in a pharisaical spirit? How many of you know any Christians that have a problem with a pharisaical spirit? It's a self-righteousness that enjoys pointing the finger at other people, pointing out other people's faults, and all the while thinking that they are somehow on the other side of that. They're oblivious to that. They're, they're better than that. It also means practicing or advocating strict observance of external forms and ceremonies of religion or conduct without regard to the spirit. In other words, religion. A pharisaical spirit is one that celebrates the law and ceremony and puts aside and shuns the things of the Spirit. That's why I so appreciate the operation of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit here this morning. God forbid that we become pharisaical in our attitude or spirit and shut down that manifestation, shut down that beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit when He's wanting to do something because we have to get on with our order of service. We have to get on with our form and our ceremony. How many of you have ever been part of something like that? How many of you have ever been in a setting where it was obvious that, that what, they, what they were all about and consumed with was just getting on with the order of service? To the exclusion of the manifestation, the moving, the freedom of the Holy Spirit. That's pharisaical. It's a problem in the church. 
So Paul's approach is this. Romans chapter 1, he speaks of the notoriously guilty. But now in chapter 2, he speaks of those who are moral in their conduct, congratulating themselves that they are not like those described in Romans chapter 1. And so there's this guilt now of the moralist. Jesus dealt with this topic in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Listen. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everybody else. For I don't cheat and I don't sin and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What's the point? Being justified by, by obedience does not equate to righteousness that comes by faith. This is a major point in chapter 2. Our attitude. Do we humble ourselves and receive of the benevolence, the grace of God, knowing that there's a universal guilt that everybody suffers under? And it's into that universal guilt that Jesus comes and presents the gospel, the good news. Look at verse 4. The New American Standard says, We should not think lightly of God's long-suffering. The New Living says, Doesn't this mean anything to you? Does this mean nothing to you? Do you take this for granted, his love, his benevolence, his long-suffering? He's kind, he's tolerant, he's patient. And the mirror translation says, the wealth of his benevolence and his resolute refusal to let you go. Dear ones, that one that you've been pointing a finger at, that individual who has a lifestyle right now that you're just aghast, you, you can't stand to be around them, you need to realize something. God loves that person. God's crazy about them. God enjoys being around them. He's not shunned them. In fact, His benevolence and His resolute patience and passion is to not let them go. He's long-suffering. No matter what they're involved in. And dear ones, no matter what you're involved in, no matter how deeply you have fallen or backslidden or what kind of sin you may have in your life, I'm here to tell you God's benevolence, His tolerance, His grace is constantly reaching, constantly refusing to let you go. He's chasing you. Aren't you glad for that? And it's that kindness that actually leads us to repentance. Did you notice that? It leads us. It doesn't drive us. 
God never drives you. He always leads you. And how does he do that? By kindness, not by wrath, not by angry judgment. So verse 4 says that there is coming a day where you and I are going to answer for. There's coming a day where we're going to answer for those works. Now, I, I, I love the meaning of this word repentance, that God is drawing us, leading us through His kindness to repent. It's in your notes there. It's the Greek word metaneo. That actually comes from two Greek words, meta, which means together with, and nuos, which means mind. So, in other words, together with God's mind. This word suggests this, a radical mind shift. God's kindness is always leading us into a radical mind shift of leaving our sin behind and starting to think and embrace the things that he does. So verse 4 again from the mirror translation. Do not underestimate God's kindness. I believe we have a slide on this. Sam, if we could put that back up. Go back to that slide that has verse 4 of Romans. I think they're labeled for you. Verse 4, do not underestimate God's kindness, the wealth of his benevolence and his resolute refusal to let go of us in his patient passion is to shepherd everyone into repentance, a radical mind shift. Now, this is not talking about behavior modification. This is not talking about responding out of guilt and shame to an emotional plea to come forward in the church. This is talking about a finished work where Jesus died, was buried, and rose again so that you and me, so that you and I could have eternal life. And furthermore, that right now here on this earth, we could enjoy a radical mind shift where we actually think and believe like God thinks. It's His faith that saved us. It's His faith that pursues us. It's His belief in you that refuses to let go of you, not your belief in Him that's trying to get to be like God. Oh, that's such a mistake. Listen to me. Religion climbs a ladder and through great effort, attempts to be like God, to find God. The gospel teaches us that he is pursuing you relentlessly and is bringing us into a radical mind shift where we realize it's done. In Christ, it's all done. We are his. We're saved. Look at verse 5. From the New Living it says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The mirror translation says, A calloused heart that resists change accumulates cause to self-destruction. I like that. I like it because once again, 
It's not setting God up to be the bully, the one who every day is just waiting for you to do something wrong so we can squash you like a bug. No, rather, he's the one that's pursuing you resolutely, passionately, to get you to change your mind. Not your behavior, but your mind, because he knows when you change your mind, when you begin to think like God thinks about you, when you begin to realize that he's redeemed you back to your original innocence of who you were all the way back in Genesis when he created Adam and Eve, then you'll begin to think like God. And he delivers us from a sin consciousness. One commentator said this, Divine wrath is when divine love becomes angry. Do you remember last week we talked about parents and how sometimes your children make you angry, don't they? Now, they don't make you wrathful. That's different. Wrathful is this vengeance, this desire to take it out on, to retribute, to get even. Parents, that's not what you do. But how many of you, how many of you parents that have children have ever gotten angry? <laughs> and, and, and in that anger, did you not act or do some things towards your child that temporarily caused there to be a sense of distance? And yet, you reached, you kept reaching into them to extract that thing so that they could believe differently and thus act differently. And so your anger was justified because divine wrath is when divine love becomes angry. God does get angry. But it's not a punishing anger. It's an anger to deliver us out of what's wrong, to help us, to pursue us. Judgment is good news. We understand that God's judgment is putting an end to all that's wrong in the world. So judgment is good news. Jesus, in that day when he returns, he's going to put an end to everything that's wrong. But for right now, he puts an end to everything that's wrong in our lives, in my life, as I walk with him daily. He puts an end to the things that are wrong in my life. Thank you, Jesus. And that's his judgment. Did you know that God's judgment is there when you are about to swerve in front of somebody because you're in a rush, you're headed down the highway, traffic's thick, you're frustrated, people next to you, in front of you, just, they're all from California, clearly. They don't know what they're doing on the road. They clearly do not know how to drive, especially when it snows and they're on ice. Amen? Amen? Clearly that's an issue. And in your anger and your frustration, you begin to manifest something that is not of his personality and his loving, passionate, resolute judgment comes. And he speaks to you. He doesn't drive you. He leads you and says, don't, don't, don't swerve over. Don't give that person the finger. Listen, listen, you don't know what kind of morning they had. You don't know what kind of argument they had with their spouse on their way out of the house. You don't know how that this past month they missed their rent. And as they go to work this morning, they're running late and their boss has already told them that 
If they're late again, that's the last time. They're out of here. They're fired. That's the person next to you that you've been struggling with and you'd love to get in front of. And the judgment of God comes and says, no, 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 don't, don't do that. And he challenges us in our thinking. He challenges us to change our thinking, to repent. To metaneo, to, to be together with God's mind, to come together with God's mind. How is God thinking about that person in the other car? Oh, you're not listening to me. How is God thinking about your neighbor? How is God thinking about that worker that you work beside who is struggling with the homosexual lifestyle? Or how is God thinking about them? And he absolutely forbids us in these first five verses and really the rest of the chapter to point our finger and call out sin because we are no man's judge. We have nothing to do with that. He says, stay away from it. I've called you to metneo, to think like I think. And I'm judging. I'm judging this situation. I'm judging the way that you are thinking. And I'm giving you an alternative to think like I think. Again, I see the Father heart of God in chapter 2. Patient, long-suffering, drawing and wooing us. Listen to me, the subject matter being spoken about here is definitely not a snapshot event. Neither, it is, neither is it the daily disposition of God. Rather, it's a regrettable day that is being held in the future and as Weiss translation states, for the non-persuadable with respect to the truth. There are people who will not be persuaded. There are people who simply, through the end of time, when finally time wraps up, and there's nothing more that God can do, no more persuading or pursuing or seeking that can be done, there's people that all the way to the end will not be persuaded about the truth. And there is a day of judgment. There is a day of the Lord. There is an anger of the Lord that will manifest in a different way. But dear ones, that is not us. That is not you. That is not God's disposition. That is not how God lives daily. That is not how God thinks. And that is not how God is loving each and every individual, born again or not. Christian or not, churchgoer or not, God is reaching. God is loving. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, look at it. You say, oh my goodness, we're only on verse 6. We, we, have, we have 22 more verses to go. He said we're going to go through chapter 2 today. Hang in there. Hang in there. <laughs> yeah, brother, because I want to be able to rejoice with those who rejoice or slap you silly. Verse 6, look at it. The New Living Translation says, He will judge. He will judge. We have to be honest with Scripture. It's before us. We can't set it aside and pretend like 
it's not going to happen. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. So again, this is sort of like a Google Earth view of the universal guilt of man. This is not talking about your daily relationship with Jesus. This is not talking about God calling you out for every mistake. This is talking about a universal guilt of man. Pull back in that Google Earth uh, view that we showed you last week and look at the earth. And Paul is writing a letter here to the Roman church. And he's trying to explain the gospel. And he's trying to explain the foundation of God's righteousness and God's forgiveness. And he has to start with the universal guilt of man. Because remember, he's writing not only to Gentiles, but he's writing to a Jewish church who did not believe they had guilt. Who in their moralistic superior selves believed that they were God's chosen and that they were above sin and guilt and the need for a savior after all they had the temple they had sacrifices I submit to you to keep in mind that judgment is self-activated again the mere translation of verse 5 a calloused heart that resists change accumulates cause to self-destruction Verse 6, by resisting him, you are your own. You are on your own. Your own deeds will judge you. See, judgment is self-activated. Rejecting God's goodness keeps you snared in a lifestyle ruled by sin consciousness and condemnation. If you choose to live a life outside of truth where you reject truth and you reject the Holy Spirit and you reject God's kindness and benevolence, then he has to leave us to ourselves. Sometimes parents have to leave their children to themselves to experience not your anger per se, but rather the judgment of their acts, the judgment of their hardness, the judgment of their calloused heart. Reese translation of the Bible says in verse 5, but according to your obstinate and unrepentant heart, verse 7, you who are non-persuadable with respect to the truth. Verse 10. Tribulation and anguish will come upon every soul of man who works out to a finish evil. There are some people who absolutely will refuse till the end of time anything to do with Christ or the gospel or truth or God's love. And we says there is a tribulation that will come on souls who work out to the finish evil. But dear ones, I remind you, this is not God's daily disp disposition. This is not God pursuing everybody who's wicked and judging them. How many of you, <laughs> I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll take a poll. You don't need to raise your hand, but I know you'll relate with this. How many of you, just in the past 30 days, have been around somebody who had something seriously wrong happen, a real health issue, they were fired at work, um, their garage caught on fire. I mean, just something kind of really bad. And the thought entered your mind because they weren't a Christian. Well, see, that's God. That's God trying to tell them something. That's God judging them for their lifestyle. 
How many of you have ever thought that when somebody got sick and you knew their lifestyle was a compromise of God's best, you thought, well, see, they're being judged for their lifestyle. They're being judged for those homosexual desires, and so that's why. See, that's what I'm talking about. And God says, you who point your finger and you condemn others for what they're doing, you are guilty of the very same. You have no right to judge anyone. You have no right to declare what God is thinking about anybody. But what we do know is that in his benevolence, he is lovingly, passionately, resolute to pursue you until he can get that metaneo, that mind shift, that shift of mind. And he will do it unto the very end. And what happens at the end? I take my hands off of it. I've got to preach the gospel and I've got to be faithful to the word of God. But this is all we need to say about chapter 2 really. Verses 12 through 16. Let's go there. Verses 12 through 16 of chapter 2. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do not have God's law, they'll be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in His sight. That's such a difficult scripture. Did you see that? Verse 13, back in New Living. We're not, we're not using mirror right now, brother. So we can just stay out of all that. What, what we just, we just want to be in New Living. Verse 13 of New Living for merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in His sight. Really? Pastor, I thought you've been preaching all year long that it's not behavior modification and, and obeying the law that makes us right with God. I know, huh? <laughs> That's why when you read something like this, you go... What? And that's why I'm so glad for Romans chapter 3 and 4 and 5 that's going to begin to explain all of this. Keep in mind, the big idea here for chapter 2 is that God has stepped back and we're looking at the whole world and we're looking at a universal guilt of man and even the guilt of the moralist who wants to point his finger. And he says, look, whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are under the law. Verse 15, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their conscience and their thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. And this is the message that I proclaim, that the day, of, that the day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secret life. Wow. Yes, that day is coming. It is a reality. It is going to happen. It is going to take place. And thank God, I am not going to be part of that judgment. Thank God, you are not going to be part of that judgment because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So now, Sam, the Mirror Bible does say, look, verse, verse 12, the Mirror Bible will be on the screen. Ruin, regarding these verses that we just read, 
Ruin and self-destruction are inevitable results of sin, whether somebody knows the law or not. Do, Do you see what he's doing? He's writing a letter to the church at Rome. He's trying to lay a foundation for the grace of God. So in his laying a foundation for the grace of God, he's explaining universal guilt. Verse 13. Righteousness is not a hearsay thing. It is a faith-inspired practical living, giving new definition to the law. Woo! Glory! New definition to the law is what? A faith-inspired practical living of just following Jesus. Not trying to obey the moral code. Verse 14. For even a pagan's natural instinct will confirm the law to be present in his conscience, even though he has never even heard about Jewish laws. Thus he proves to be a law unto himself. Verse 15, the law is so much more than mere written code. Its presence in human conscience, even in the absence of the written instruction, is obvious. Condemning or commending personal conduct. Verse 16, every hidden conflicting thought will be disclosed in the daylight of God's scrutiny based on the good news of Jesus Christ that I proclaim. All of those are from the mirror translation as you read verses 12 through 16. Love that take on things, really do. Now, some of us have so been raised with a covenant in the old covenant, Sunday school, church attendance, that we forget that there's a new covenant. Still today, even after receiving Jesus as our Lord, we tend to walk through life and think about every circumstance and situation based on old covenant thinking. God's going to judge. I'm not blessed because I haven't been good enough. This isn't happening in my life that's good or blessing. This blessing isn't taking place in my life because I didn't read my Bible today. That's old covenant. God's going to judge these sinners because of their lifestyle. That's Old Covenant. Let me show you something. Hebrews chapter 8. Can we put that up, uh, Sam, please? Hebrews chapter 8, and I want you to find and read with me and look on the screen, unless you're going to go to your Bible, but I want everybody to actually look at the Scripture. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 7. Now watch these words. Do we have new living up here? Okay. If the first covenant, what is that? What is the first covenant? The Old Testament. Where is the Old Testament? Right? It's in the front. I'm just, I'm trying, you know, basic Bible, I'm not sure if some of you know, but, you know, to two, two-thirds of your Bible, like, I mean, I'm still in Hosea there, so, I mean, this, this whole part, that's what he's talking about. Listen, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a... Oh, you're not... If this had been sufficient, and I'll, I'll go ahead because it, it even gets thicker here. Here's Matthew chapter 2, chapter, okay. 
If this had been faultless, there wouldn't have been a need for this. Did you know that was in your Bible? That this is with fault? And so they had to have this? See, you don't read your Bible. We got to start reading our Bible. Because this has fault, they had to come up with this. Am I being disingenuous? If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to do what? To do what? So this replaces this. And here's, here's Paul's take on this part. It's written for our instruction. There's things in it, as you read, that God will help you with and reveal that will show you the Christ and give meaning to your life. And it, it, it's written to be an example to us, he says, in Corinthians and Romans. But we don't live there. We don't build our lives on there. We don't establish doctrine out of there. We don't preach the gospel out of there. We don't tell people about their lives and how to change and how to come to God. Through this, we use this. Oh, now I'm really going to upset the apple cart. Okay, this, all this, okay, 66 books, leather binding, all of this. Did you know they didn't even have this for the three, first 350 years of the church? So let me make a statement to you. Your faith is not based on the Scriptures. Christianity is not based on the Bible. It's based on an event that Jesus came to this earth. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And His Son came and hung on a cross for you and me. And He died. And He was buried. And He spent three days, three nights in that grave. But then God raised Him from the dead. And He's alive. And He ever lives and makes intercession for all of you, pursuing you passionately until the day that he can get you to go through a metanoia of your mind and say, Oh my God, he is alive. I receive him into my heart. He's changed the whole world. That's the gospel, and that's what they preached, and they never had one of these. And they turned the world upside down, the Bible says in Acts, without one of these. I'm not demeaning the Scriptures. I'm not dismissing the importance of Scripture at all. I just want you to get a revelation that our faith and that Christianity is based on a person. It's based on an event. It is not based on your interpretation of that book. So quit preaching hell and damnation. The church fathers didn't all agree on those difficult subjects. What are you doing sticking your nose up in the air? Thinking you have the right, you have the knowledge, you have the revelation of Scripture that gives you an ability to point your bony little finger and call out people's sins. How dare you? 
That's not the gospel. <laughs> I said, boy, pastor, you're getting excited here. I think I enjoyed the first 10 minutes a little better. <clears throat> what I'm getting excited about is a new understanding and revelation of Romans chapter 2 that's just always had me all twisted and convoluted. And I mean, I loved God. I understood He loved me, and He, he gave me His grace. But man, He's going to fry me if I don't do everything right. And God, you know I screw up every day. You're supposed to say that in church. Let's keep reading. But when God, who found fault? When God found fault with the people, when God found fault, Romans chapter 2, universal guilt, Gentile or Jew, all are guilty, even the moralists. All right. When God found fault with the people, he said, all right, I'm going to take care of this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the old one that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. Notice, when you preach that, that is old covenant theology. Did you get that? When you preach that God turns his back on sin, that is old covenant theology. When you tell people that if they do that, if they have that sin in their life, if they live like that, God's going to turn his back on them, that is old covenant. You cannot live there. There's a new covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But, everybody say but. Oh, come on. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their where? What have we been talking about? Metaneo. God pursues us to get us to have a radical mind shift. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. You should know the Lord. You, your life is disgusting. You need to come to Jesus. You, sir. Oh my gosh, that stuff in you. You need to get that out of your life and come to Jesus. You need to come know the Lord. You will not do that, he says. You will not evangelize like that. You won't go out on the streets. You won't go treasure hunting. You will not go treasure hunting under an old covenant mantle. That you have to change. That the things in your life are disgusting and God's going to turn his back. No. What are you going to tell them? God loves you so much. He's put his, 
He's put the reality of Him and the knowledge of Him in your own mind. He's written it on your heart. You already know it. There's so many layers of disgusting stuff from this world, like an onion. There's so many things covering it up that you can't see it. But He's already done it. For Watch this. And you will not teach it to their neighbors, nor will you teach it to your relatives, saying you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness and never again remember their sins. Verse 13, and when God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he has made the first one. Are you reading the same Bible I am? God's made the old one obsolete. We just go back to it as a reference to find out different things about God, use it as an example, learn about worship and praise, some of the great things we've learned about how to worship God. We learn out of the Old Testament the names of God, how God healed His people. How we... But you cannot teach disobedience, obedience, law, sin, wrath of God from the old covenant because he put out a new one and he made the old one obsolete. So he wraps up chapter 2 in verses 17 through 29. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 29. I'll read it quickly. You who call yourselves Jews, you're relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with Him. You know what He wants. You know what is right because uh, you have been taught His law. You're convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain uh, that God's law gives you a complete knowledge of the truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal. Why don't you not steal? But why do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from the pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. And that means every jot and tittle, by the way. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than the uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you are not true, a true Jew just because you were born Jewish or of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart, whose heart, is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obedience of the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit and a person who with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. I want to share with you two scriptures. Look at this. Now you have to understand who was reading this letter. Jewish people were shocked at this gospel. They were shocked like you are this morning at some of the things I've said about the scripture. You're shocked. So were they. Why? Because they thought if they were circumcised, they were saved. The Jew believed that circumcision guaranteed his salvation. 
I'm a descendant of Abraham. I've been circumcised. In Paul's day, listen to this, some rabbis taught that Abraham sat at the entrance of hell and made certain that none of his circumcised descendants went in there. They taught that. You say, that's crazy. No, we teach justice. Silly, foolish things in our churches today as that. Things like your dress can only be so long and your hair has to be cut just so short and you can't wear a mustache and, oh, oh, and you can't go to a bar, all right? And alcohol is completely gone. You you can't drink. Even wine, a glass of wine with a meal, you, you can't drink, all right? Now, I'm not judging. I'm not telling you right or wrong on that. I'm saying this is the stuff the church teaches today. And it's no different than what they taught about. Some rabbis taught that God will judge Gentiles with one measure and Jews with a different one. All Israelites, uh, all Israelites, all Israelites will have part in the world to come. That's what they taught. And so here comes Paul, turning the apple cart upside down. He writes Romans, and he follows it with two letters to the church at Philippi and the church at Colossae. Listen, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Colossians 2 verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. So what are we talking about as we end up uh, chapter 2 and slide over into chapter 3 now of Romans? What are we talking about? Universal guilt of all man, that someday there is a day of reckoning, yes, but that is not God's disposition. He is passionately pursuing you, trying to bring you into a metaneo. So committed is he to this, he wrote a new covenant. So I submit to you as we close, believing changes me and causes me to receive what he purchased on that cross. Listen to me. Believing changes me and causes me to receive what he purchased on the cross. Believing does not change God. It is though we think when we say believe on the Lord that he'll change his mind, count you okay, and he won't send you to hell. If you'll believe, God will change his mind and not send you to hell. (laughs) Dear ones, God's already made up his mind. He's not willing that any would perish. He doesn't send anyone to hell. Will you believe? Will you believe this morning? Will you believe on what Jesus did?